Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Good day, one and all. Welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. Well, we've reached quarter four of 2005, and for the third straight episode, there are some undisputed classics that I just can't wait to talk about. It's true that sometimes the music you like in your teens or your 20s doesn't always hold up later on in life. And it's also true that I go through weeks or even a month where the songs I listen to aren't super great, just good at the moment, but not really all-time status. Well, 2005 was not really a strong year for me, but it was a strong year for the music that I was listening to, and names such as R.E.M., The Cure, and Roxy Music pop up, as well as return artists David Bowie and They Might Be Giants. The first song that we'll talk about is not one of those classics. For the week ending October 8th, 2005, spending one week at the top, here's the title track from that movie A Mighty Wind. From the people who brought you, this is Spinal Tap. As I travel down the back roads of this home I love so much, every carpenter and cowboy, every lame man on a garage, they're all talking about a feeling, about a taste that's in the air. And it's burning like a flame. So, as mentioned earlier, A Mighty Wind is another Christopher Guest-directed movie, much like This is Spinal Tap and Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show. This came out in 2003, years after those other three movies, and I think it's kind of gotten lost in the shuffle as far as his type of movies go. Much like This is Spinal Tap, A Mighty Wind is a mockumentary, this time being a parody of the early 60s folk scene. The crux of the movie is a fictional music producer in the folk scene had passed away, so his children wanted to organize a memorial concert with three of his biggest acts in the 60s. You've got Michael McKee and Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer playing the Folksman, sort of a take on the Kingston Trio. And true fact, the Folksman actually originated around the same time as This Is Spinal Tap. They performed a few songs on a 1984 episode of Saturday Night Live, as Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer were cast members at the time, and Michael McKeon was the guest host. And they would also quote-unquote open for Spinal Tap on tours to a confused and sometimes hostile audience. They start off as the Folksman, then they go backstage and change it to Spinal Tap. Brilliant! Back to A Mighty Wind, the other two groups featured are the new Main Street Singers, said to be a take on the new Christy Minstrels, 
although their peppy, sanitized folk sounds very much like the rooftop singer's version of Walk Right In from 1963. And the final group shown in the mighty wind was Mitch and Mickey, a take on Ian and Sylvia, a married then divorced folk act from Canada. And oh, by the way, Mitch and Mickey are played by two Canadians. Yep, Mitch is played by Eugene Levy, and Mickey played by Catherine O'Hara. Two people who've always had great chemistry on screen together, and they proved it once again with Schitt's Creek, a quarantine favorite show of mine. This title track takes place as the very last song in the film. After each act does a few of their own songs, they come together for this finale. Each act gets a verse of their own, they all come together for the chorus, and you can tell the differences between each of those acts in the verses. The new Main Street singers get the first verse in their overly harmonized way. And you heard a little bit of the Folksman before I faded that one out. And Mitch and Mickey get the third verse. And I remember being kind of rushed in the movie. But then again, it was after their emotional climax. A kiss at the end of the rainbow. So, there you go. The song itself is pretty cute. It's obviously going in the blowing in the wind direction. Only a lot less serious, but still. Hey, it's equality. It's peace and freedom. It's the 60s. All that totally happened. I would use the same adjectives to describe the movie. It's cute, more of a chuckler than a laugh-out-louder, and a lot more gentle toward its target than This Is Spinal Tap was for the heavy metal musicians. Nice soundtrack, too. Kind of a cool story that Michael McKeon and his wife Annette O'Toole wrote many of the songs after 9-11. When the planes were grounded, they had to drive from Los Angeles to Vancouver, B.C., where O'Toole's show Smallville was being filmed. It totally makes sense. A gentle movie like this is kind of a good balm for stressful times, be it 9-11 or quarantine. Check that movie out. It's good for a day in. After taking a few months off, They Might Be Giants return to the top of the charts. Spending two weeks at number one, here they are with The Guitar. Parentheses, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. While this is the fifth time we've seen song or songs by They Might Be Giants hit the top of the charts, this is the first one that's the complete brainchild of John Flansburg. As I'd mentioned in Put Your Hand Inside the Puppet Head, Flansburg's voice sounds quite similar to Linnell's, both high-pitched and nasal, but his voice tends to be a little more gentle than Linnell's. Plus, he seems to be more of the extrovert of the two. Whenever They Might Be Giants post something on social media, it's usually Flansburg. He's the voice of the group more often than Linnell. And this extroversion kinda spills over into the way he writes music, whereas Linnell is all about keen sense of melody, mostly in a pop style of his own. Flansburg is a lot more diverse in his songs, a lot more experimentation, trying his hand at different styles. He definitely has his melodic songs that could be penned by Linnell, but he's also dabbled in jazz, country, harder rock, bossa nova, the occasional acoustic ballad. 
Meanwhile, lyrically, he can be just as obtuse and abstract as John Linnell, but a lot less dark, cynical for the most part. This song, The Guitar, comes from their 1992 album Apollo 18, their fourth release and their second on Elektra Records. Along with 1988's Lincoln, Apollo 18 is also a good place to start if you're just getting into They Might Be Giants. Unlike the prior album Flood, which kind of took advantage of a big budget but spottier songwriting than normal, Apollo 18 strikes a good balance between the quirky They Might Be Giants signature sound and a fuller arrangement, so it sounds a little more accessible, their self-titled debut or Lincoln. But despite the fuller sound, the bulk of the instrumentation is still handled by the duo, though this would be the last album that they would do as a duo. Subsequent albums would find them recording with a backing band, with a dedicated bass player, guitar player, drums, etc. The Guitar was one of three singles released from the album, even though it didn't have any chart success, even on the modern rock charts. It was the result of a jam session based around that oldie goldie, The Lion Sleeps Denied by the Tokens, a song that even an oldies loving guy has never liked in any iteration. I've always just found it annoying and catchy but not in a good way. The chorus takes the main melody of that song but inserts new lyrics like Hush my darling, be still my darling, the lion's on the phone, as sung by alt-country artist Laura Cantrell in a guest appearance. But most of the song is kind of an instrumental jam with a chunk of chunk of guitar rhythm and a continuous bass line that I've read is supposed to be consistent with The Lion Sleeps Tonight, but I don't know. And the only verses have John asking, who's that playing the guitar? Is it Jim? I don't know. Yeah, this sounds like it was born from a jam than anything else. But it's still quirky in all the best ways. Besides those instrumental elements, it's also got horns played out of tune by, I believe, John Linnell. That's another They Might Be Giants trope. It's a lot of fun nonsense. And as I can attest to, it goes over very well live. And band members can add extended solos and such. So to recap, fun song, maybe not top top tier They Might Be Giants, but I love it. On the week ending October 29th, we got a one week number one with a spooky song. Maybe not really. Actually, it's a double sided one. It's the return of The Move with Night of Fear and Flowers in the Rain. Here's a sample of the former. Welcome back, The Move. Both of these songs were in a run of five singles over two years that hit the top five in the UK. The last song featured on here, Fire Brigade, topped out at number three, while a runner-up from the last episode, Blackberry Way, was their sole number one. Both Night of Fear and Flowers in the Rain topped out at number two. 
Not a Fear was her first single, and was kept off number one by I'm a Believer by the Monkees. And Flowers in the Rain was later on in 1967, kept out of number one by Stinkin' Engelbert Humperdinck. Flowers in the Rain is a pretty typical rain-slash-psychedelic song, starting off with the requisite thunderclap and rain-falling sound effects. It wasn't the main reason this song got to number one. I prefer Night of Fear. Now, as I said, this was their first single released at the tail end of 1966. The first notes you hear from the song almost kind of foreshadow Electric Light Orchestra, the band that Roy Wood would later co-found, then abandon, leaving Jeff Lynne, in that it invokes a classical song. In this case, the main riff and bass lick are the 1812 Overture. So, no orchestra yet, nor aviator sunglasses or bad perm, but the seeds are there. There's another psychedelic trope here, whereas Flowers in the Rain was about rain. Night of Fear is about bad stuff happening to you at night. It may or may not be drug-related, but they do say just about to flip your mind, just about to trip your mind, so probably some substances at play. Probably a distant British cousin of a song I featured many episodes ago. The Electric Prunes, I Had Too Much to Dream Last Night. But that one was more about missing a lady, and the music supported the lyrics a little bit more. Whereas Night of Fear, I think on purpose, has a really upbeat melody and sing-songy, even though the subject matter is not too happy. As this was released in late 1966, it was something on the vanguard of this type of sound. One article in the UK said, Meet the pioneers of the psychedelic sound. But MOVE member, later ELO member, Bev Bevan debunked that, saying that, yeah, the band did their fair share of drugs like anyone else in 67, but songs like Night of Fear or other ones are not really drug-related. They're just fairy stories rooted in childhood, which makes sense for a British group. They were a lot more into ye old England and old fairy tales, Alice in Wonderland, drug or no drug. I'll talk about the MOVE a little bit more in episodes in 2006, but by that time, they're kind of a different group. They had two songs hit number one on my charts, both from the 1970s, and I'll explain the differences when we get there. On the week ending November 5th, we got the first of two number one entries this episode of David Bowie. Here he is, one week at the top, with Ashes to Ashes. They got a message from the action man. Guys, I'm gonna start off by dropping a little truth bomb. I prefer this song to Space Oddity by a wide margin. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I should totally turn in my David Bowie fan card by saying that. But Space Oddity is a song that I respect quite a bit more than I love. 
even after David Bowie's death in January 2016, when that song should have had a new poignancy to it, it still doesn't really move the needle for me emotionally. But like I said, I respect the hell out of the song, even though I prefer Rocket Man by Elton John, as songs about space go. That Space Oddity Ashes to Ashes comparison isn't for nothing, as Ashes to Ashes is a sequel to Space Oddity, checking in on Major Tom up there in space 11 years after Space Oddity. In that earlier song, or as Bowie said in Ashes to Ashes, the guy that's been in such an early song, Major Tom is up in space and he doesn't want to come back down to Earth. He knows what's back home and he doesn't want any part of it anymore. But by 1980, the year the song came out, Major Tom is not in a good place. Somehow he's become addicted to drugs and paranoid, having regrets about his choice and wanting a better life, but the planet is glowing, 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 glowing. The most poignant part of the song was when he exclaims he's never done good things or bad things or done anything out of the blue. He wants to come back down now. On the day that David Bowie died, I was listening to a selection of some of my favorite songs of his. By the time I got to this part of the song, that was the realization moment. Oh crap, he's gone. And yeah, tears did well up in my music-loving eyes. But then they come back to Earth for the chorus, ashes to ashes, funk to funky. We know Major Tom's a junkie. Sounds like a playground chant or something. As if by that point, the story of Major Tom might have been passed down to kids is probably a cautionary tale. Like, the boogeyman's gonna get you. And speaking of nursery rhymes, the part that ends the song, Mom always said, get things done, better not mess with Major Tom. That was based on a real British nursery rhyme as well. I guess those themes were bouncing around Bowie's head. So moving on to the music, I love it. That passage begins the song with that slightly out-of-tune piano, synthesized guitars yelping every once in a while, the croaking bass, the drums that an NPR article referred to as disorienting yet mathematical. It's one of those musical passages where every instrument fits together, and I would gladly listen to that on a loop for 10 or 15 minutes. Reviews say that it owes a little bit to the new romantic scene of 1980. I don't quite hear it. It doesn't sound completely dated to its time. It comes from his album Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. That album followed on the heels of his Berlin trilogy that was really coked up and experimental. Much like his 1976 album Station to Station, which I'll talk a little bit later on this episode, it's kind of a transitional album from experimental work into stuff a little more accessible even though it's still a far cry from Let's Dance and Modern Love. Bowie himself regarded the album, and especially Ashes to Ashes, as sort of a goodbye to the 70s, closing the book on all of the phases that he had during their Thin White Duke, Ziggy Stardust, Major Tom, etc., etc. It brought him commercial success after lagging for a little bit. Ashes to Ashes became his second number one in the UK, helped by the music video, which at the time was the most expensive music video ever made. Production costs were £250,000. Of course, that's been eclipsed many times over by music videos ever since. But the granddaddy of them all is still the 1995 music video for Scream, Michael and Janet Jackson. But then again, were either of them dressed up in a clown costume like David Bowie was in Ashes to Ashes? No. That costume, of course, immortalized in an episode of Flight of the Concords. Brett. 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 Hey. It's 1980 David Bowie, from the music video Ashes to Ashes. Hey David Bowie. Well, let's leave Bowie in space and move on. Knocking David Bowie off the throne? 
It's a group that hadn't seen number one for four years prior. It's R.E.M. spending two weeks at the top with Pilgrimage and Catapult. Here's a sample of Pilgrimage. This is the second time we've encountered Murmur by R.E.M. on this podcast. The first being back in quarter four of 2001, when I talked about the first song on the album, Radio Free Europe, which hit number one on my charts at that time. About four years later, I finally listened to the full Murmur album. And as much as I like pretty much all R.E.M. albums, Murmur is still the best album they ever made, in my opinion. It was their first full-length album, released in 1983 not counting an EP they released a year before, Chronic Town. Words kind of fail me to describe why I love this album so much or what appeals to me about it. A somewhat crazy comparison would be Bob Dylan's Blonde on Blonde. That was an album that felt like its own self-contained universe. Every song had a very similar production that's very hard to describe. And the same goes for Murmur. It's an album that sounds nothing like the later releases by R.E.M., Michael Stipe hadn't fully opened up his mouth while singing at this point. So that's why I call this album Murmur, because that's what he was doing. <laughs> the band made it a point to avoid some cliches like rock guitar solos or 1983-era synthesizers to give the album a timeless feel. And most songs kind of have the same structure on that album. A verse melody that's just the same one repeated four times, sometimes with a little guitar lick. Side note, the traditional R.E.M. jangle isn't quite present yet in their sound. All the choruses differed. Some were louder and more expressive than others. On these two songs, Pilgrimage and Catapult, they're definitely the former. And in general, the mood of the album is just more quiet and introverted than, say, Life's Rich Pageant or Document or Out of Time, where it was a little more extrovert and Michael Stipe could sing more clearly. Not that it bothers me. I think I've mentioned before, but on early R.E.M. songs, it's best to treat Michael Stipe's voice as another instrument, especially on Gardening at Night, which was part of the Chronic Town EP. Coupled with the fact that a lot of the songs on this album are very cryptic and ambiguous, I'm just going to skip any lyrical analysis on either of these songs. Catapult was a song I didn't provide a sample of, but it is a little more conventional R.E.M. than Pilgrimage. I'd heard the song a few years prior when my brother was playing it back when he lived at home. And one night, I might have been sleep-deprived or something, I jokingly misheard the chorus, Catapult! Catapult! As, Gotta poop! Gotta poop! 
Guys, I'm telling you, I'm hilarious. In all serious, I think I like Pilgrimage a little bit more. It stands apart from the rest of the album in that it has a piano-based sound more than anything else. That would be band member Mike Mills on the piano. He also played bass, and he provided the first of many wonderful countermelody backup vocals on the chorus. Pilgrimage is a song that Stipe has gone on record saying he doesn't remember what it was about. At the time when they were recording it, he thought, nailed it, made perfect sense, then he forgot what sense that was. But no matter. I love everything about this song. From those moody verses where speaking in tongues is worth a broken lip, to the pre-chorus that perfectly builds into the chorus itself, that's so cathartic even though it's meaningless, shows that a song does not have to be lyrically coherent to really hit you in the gut cathartically. I don't think I'm doing this song or this album a whole lot of justice talking about it, but it has been a long, busy last couple of weeks. I missed last Wednesday dropping this episode, so I took a week off instead of my usual one week between episodes. But not to worry, I'm back, this song is awesome, that damn Trump is gone, everybody happy. Well, one of these things is not like the other. In the midst of Super Super Classics at number one, we got a novelty single at number one. On the week ending November 26th for one week, it's Murray Head with One Night in Bangkok. Bangkok, oriental setting in the city, don't know what the city is getting. The creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but Yule Brinner. up for some chess. Oh yeah, we all remember that hit 1984 concept album, later made into a play two years later in the West End in London, about a grand international chess tournament with the two competing people being the American and the Soviet. Like I mentioned earlier, the album came two years before the musical, and there's never been a movie adaptation of it, nor have there been any touring shows in the last 20 years. So the album's your best bet to get to know chess in any way. Which, meh, it's very dated, obviously. Cold War themes and all that. Lyrics by one Tim Rice. Music not by Andrew Lloyd Webber, but by the two guys from ABBA, Benny and Bjorn. One of their first projects post-ABBA. Bangkok is where the chess tournament takes place, and the song contrasts this happy chorus extolling the virtue of Bangkok with the Americans' lack of interest in the city, too focused on chess, because he gets his kicks above the waistline, sunshine. Murray Head's playing the American here and on the album. He was a British actor and singer who was a veteran of the scene. He was in the West End production of Hair, and he was the first to portray Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar, in this case just the concept album from 1970, before the musical. In this song, he's rapping the verses, almost sounding like a 1940s guy, The first line sounds like one of those narrators, Bangkok, Oriental setting, prohibition, or whatever. And he's got that weird New York accent throughout the whole song, 
You're talking to a tourist who was every moves among the purists. See? Nah. Meanwhile, the chorus is sang by a Swedish studio musician, Anders Glenmark, I think it's pronounced. I could totally hear Abba singing that chorus. You can tell it's a Bjorn and Benny production there. It became a surprise hit here in America, peaking at number three in early 1985. All indications say that it had nothing to do with chess. The music video didn't show any shots from the play or anything. I'm thinking we saw this as an 80s one-hit wonder novelty like Rock Me Amadeus. I was quite familiar with this song since the late 90s. A local radio station had a one-hour block at noon called Flashback Cafe with lots of 80s and 70s songs. They played One Night in Bangkok a lot. So why was it number one on my charts? VH Bleepin' One. By this point, they had their third installment of I Love the 80s. Scraping that barrel. And they talked about this song in the 1984 episode. I guess my remembering of the ridiculousness of the song and finally seeing parts of the music video, most notably that kicks above the waistline line with him from a perspective of a lady's legs and how the original shot had golf balls or some balls coming out of her you-know-what, but they had to edit it out. Thank you, VH1 guys, for learning me about this song and infusing some novelty in an otherwise pretty top-notch run of number ones. Oh well, let's move on. Heading into December, it's the fourth straight number one that came from the 1980s. For two weeks at number one, the week ending December 3rd, it's The Cure with The Love Cats and Let's Go to Bed. Let's hear a little bit of The Love Cats. So, the first two times we saw Cure on Music Gives My Radar, it was in the middle or later stages of their career when they were okay with being pop. Meanwhile, Love Cats and Let's Go to Bed came out in 1983 and 1982 respectively. In each case, they were standalone singles that weren't included on any album. In late 1982, the band had released their fourth studio album, Pornography, which I haven't heard yet but is said to be the zenith of their pure goth rock phase. Robert Smith was said to be really depressed at the time. I mean, even for him, ha 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 ha. And evidently, recording the album took a toll on the band, and they were on the brink of collapse. Sensing that maybe he'd gone a bit too far, Robert Smith decided he wanted to write something a little more pop-friendly. Thus, Let's Go to Bed came about. The rest of the band was not really having it at first, and Smith thought that the single would go nowhere. But he decided, what the hell? He was tired of the whole gloom and doom thing. In his words, it's so ludicrous that I'm gonna go from goth rock idol to pop star in three easy lessons. But to his surprise, it became a decent hit. As he said, it became big on the West Coast, I'm assuming America. It's definitely a slice of minor key new wave. Perhaps a little more anonymous than your typical Cure song, with some do-do-do-do's, but it's still fun. 
They followed that up with The Walk in 1983. It became their first top 20 hit in the UK and mostly has a really cheesy keyboard tone. And the stage was set for Love Cats, released at the tail end of 1983, and it was something altogether completely different. First off, no, it has nothing to do with Cats the Musical that just premiered on Broadway a year prior. I don't think that was a rumor at the time, but I just wanted to throw some shade at Cats. Because it totally has it coming, man. It has been speculated that Smith was inspired to write this song based on the works of Australian author Patrick White, as in one of his books, the protagonist is appalled when his lover's husband drowns a sack of stray cats, and that shows cats as a vulnerable member of society, so innocent but so casually dismissed sometimes. That, of course, is a topic not for this podcast. I don't want to depress you guys or myself. Back to the song itself. Instead of New Wave, it's almost like a weird pop jazz thing, complete with a double bass and vibraphone and Smith himself on piano. And apparently it has a Bananas video with members of the band wearing giant cat costumes and some taxidermied cats because using real cats turned out to be a problem for them. I tried to find the music video, but it seems like the band doesn't post their music videos online or on YouTube, so no luck there. It became their first top 10 hit single in the UK, hitting number 7, but it is yet another song that becomes a hit single even though members of the band hate it. In this case, it was Robert Smith saying he wrote it as a pure parody. He said the song was composed drunk, video filmed drunk, promotion drunk, and that it was far from his favorite song. With that, and because it's so atypical of the rest of the Cure works, it's no surprise that it hasn't really endured as a live standard, although it has worked its way into their set list in the past few years. I still think it's a funny little song, not to be taken seriously. And most importantly, it inspired the mid-2000s phenomenon, the Lolcats. Look that up on YouTube. It's easier to find than a Cure video. Taking over at number one from The Cure, it's that 70s group Roxy Music with a song that only lasted one week at the top of the charts, but could very well have lasted more if it weren't for another great song that knocked it off. Here they are with If There Is Something. viewers out there might have heard something a little different on that sample, in that I provided two parts of the song, fading out from one and into the other. I don't think I've done that before, but I might do that more often going forward, 
to highlight parts of the song that aren't necessarily at the start. In the case of If There Is Something, there are three distinct parts to the song. I'll get to that a little bit later. First, a few words about Roxy Music. They were one of those artsy glam bands in the early 70s, but not like glam in the sense of David Bowie or The Swede or Slade. During their first two albums, one of which containing If There Is Something, it was a little bit of a duel between the lead singer Brian Ferry, who had this air of sophistication about him, and one Brian Eno, an early electronic wizard who would soon collaborate with everybody, David Bowie, Talking Heads, U2. On their first two albums, self-titled in 72 and For Your Pleasure in 1973, you could tell there was a bit of a push-pull going on between the two factions. Some songs would rely more on the smooth delivery of Brian Ferry. Others would be a lot more experimental stuff, courtesy of Eno. Eno decided to forge his own path after two albums, leaving Roxy Music as Brian Ferry's brainchild. And they eventually morphed into something a little more pop-friendly. That would culminate in their two biggest international hits, Love is the Drug in 1975, and More Than This from 1982 that you'll be hearing from very shortly. This song, If There Is Something, like pretty much every song from the first two albums, was solely written by Brian Ferry. There are three distinct parts of the song and the first two you heard. First part kicks off with that great guitar lick that I think Michael Buble stole for It's a Beautiful Day. But the rest of the first part that contains the title line, If There Is Something, to me is the weakest of the three by far. It's the happy part of the song, I guess, with Brian Ferry kind of sounding twangy, country-like. But after about a minute or so, it kicks into the second part of the song with that instrumental motif played by the guitar and the saxophone. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. I faded in the second sample right when Ferry's vocals come in, and it sounds a lot more vintage Brian Ferry, a hysterical vocal delivery where he sounds downright desperate and lovelorn, detailing all the stuff he'd do for his love, including my favorite part, growing potatoes by the score. It's the Idaho and me, man. Potatoes are our love language. That gives way to the saxophone played by Andy Mackey, and it plays an extended solo, going from that motif to something a little more frantic, and then giving way to a sort of a melancholic, reflective melody. Plays for a couple minutes, and I never get bored. Considering that I don't really care for the saxophone for the most part, that says a lot when a multi-minute sax solo can hold my attention for that long. At about four and a half minutes in, the saxophone fades out, and all that's left is a piano and the drums playing the same part they've been playing the whole motif. And to me, it just highlights how great of a drum performance it is to go for six and a half minutes playing the same doom 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 part. When you hear it almost all by itself, you're like, wow, that really hasn't changed. As a result, it's one of my favorite drum parts in all of rock and roll music. Way to go, Paul Thompson. The third part is a little more major key, but not a whole lot. Ferry comes back in and talks about how his love was back when they were young, with plaintive backing vocals by Brian Eno, a very underrated backing vocalist. Yeah, it's a little bit repetitive, but it's got a great faux orchestral build to it, in that those aren't actually violins playing in the background. It's the Mellotron on violin setting, as provided by Ferry, who also plays piano on the song. My interpretation of the song was, the first part was about a happy young couple spending good time together, then the second part, it gets a little rockier, and the lover is just desperate. And that might be why that instrumental passage is so darn powerful to me. It just screams desperation. And a third part, something like, oh, now we're old. Wonder how that happened. The common interpretation is a little close to mine, but not really. 
saying the first part was about a young man looking for love, and the second part was actually him and his lover in the throngs of passion, and the third part was the same as my interpretation. Regardless, it's a magnum opus of a song. It's too bad that they never got that close to something that majestic, kind of like Ultravox blowing their wild with Vienna. Although unlike Ultravox, Roxy Music has a few more classics in their catalog. Yeah, check out the song. It's six and a half minutes long, but it's well worth your time. To end this episode, and to end 2005, who else to see this year out but David Bowie? Starting the week ending December 24th, he spent two weeks on the throne with TBC15. What's that? For the second time in 2005, we have a number one song involving a television. And neither of them were by They Might Be Giants. The first, of course, being Jefferson Airplane's Plastic Fantastic Lover. But that's where comparisons end. Whereas Plastic Fantastic Lover was obviously an angry rant about TV, comparing it to a lover, TVC15 is about a guy whose girlfriend is swallowed whole by a television and then he jumps in and finds her there. Allegedly, this was inspired by a drug-fueled hallucination that Iggy Pop had at David Bowie's home, where, under the influence, he believed his television was swallowing his girlfriend. Now, this song did come from the Station to Station album in 1976. That was David Bowie's pure cocaine album. So take that explanation with a grain of salt. Maybe David Bowie thought that Iggy Pop said so. But either way, it was during a collaboration between Iggy Pop and David Bowie, in which Bowie produced his two albums, The Idiot and Lust for Life. So they did have a working relationship at the time. And about that Station to Station album, it could very well be my favorite David Bowie album. It's very much a transitional one, whereas the last one, Young Americans, he was in his Philly soul phase. As you might recall, I had the title track at number one in 2000. And then after this album, he went on to his Berlin period, more electronic and krautrock. Station to Station found him not only drugged up, but with a toe in each of the two worlds. As with If There Is Something, I had to provide two samples of the song, Fading In and Out, because those two sections are so damn good, I couldn't include just one. It is very hard to pigeonhole this song into just one genre. Respected rock critic Robert Christgau, whom I usually think is full of spit, Described this song as a cross between Lou Reed, Disco, and Huey Smith. Huey Smith is part of the New Orleans rhythm and blues rock and roll piano scene, 
much like Professor Longhair and Alan Toussaint. And as a matter of fact, the piano player was Roy Bitton, famous member of Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, and Bowie requested that he play like Professor Longhair, so there you go. This whole song is just a blast. It's like a futuristic, drug-addled 70s version of a pretty standard early rock and roll chord progression. It's got those verses with screaming guitar and Bowie's vocals, and then it transitions into the chorus, cleverly with transition, with an even more bonkers chant of the chorus, Oh my TV C15, with saxophone wailing away. The whole song sounds kind of atonal, but works in its own messed up way. I'm surprised to hear that they released it as a single from the album after Golden Years. It doesn't sound like it has much commercial potential to me. It did chart in America and the UK, but not that high. Probably my favorite memory of this song is singing along to the song while completely drunk on vodka when the parents of an ex-girlfriend was playing it at a party. I still don't know half of the words, I just know the story about the TV eating the girlfriend, but I faked it pretty good, I think. If Heroes and Ashes to Ashes are my two favorite David Bowie songs, I would say TVC15 resides somewhere in the top five. Don't know where, but it's there. It's just a gas to listen to, and what a way to end a year that was filled with top shelf number ones. All I can say is, oh, uh, oh, uh, oh, to send off the year 2005 properly, let's take a look at some honorable mentions. Quite a few excellent songs that didn't quite hit number one. Right behind Ashes to Ashes in a photo finish for number one. Stuck at number two was The Late Great Dio with Holy Diver. At number two for two weeks in December, behind Roxy Music and David Bowie. A Christmas classic, Roy Wood and Wizards, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. And at number four around the same time, Elvis Costello's only chart entry in 2005, with his version of Girls Talk backed with Dave Edmonds' version of Girls Talk. Normally I'd do a Who Wore It Better comparison to send out the episode, but sitting in at number 5 in late October, a song by a sentimental ironic favorite, just cue the movie clip. I would rather listen to Fran Drescher for 8 hours than have to listen to Michael McDonald. Nothing against him, but if I hear Yamo be there one more time, I'm going to Yamo burn this place to the ground. Yamo be Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.